You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. I've still got a pile of papers that I've just left on my floor for the past two weeks. You're doing your filing, are you? Well, I'm not doing any filing at the moment. They're just, it's just it looks like at... you've got a room of filing because I'm watching you in Zoom. Mm. Looks like you're all very well read in that house because there's <laughs> loads of books around. But Linda, I am well read actually. I'm well mm-hmm. read on magazines. Hello, and <laughs> okay. maybe I'm I'm well listened. My goodness, the podcasts that've been coming out. You're more well, well read than me. Actually. I don't think so. Mm. No. Talking of reading and talking of authors, we're going to be talking to Alison Bruce. At the moment, she's one of my favourite authors. She writes novels that are set in Cambridge. And it's great. I really love them. Because A, you can visualise completely what she's talking about. But B, she's actually doing detective novels. They're becoming increasingly favourite in my book, detective films, detective novels. She writes uh, really, really good murder mystery stories. I am really, really looking forward to what she has to say because I think I'm going to be very much convinced to read some crime thriller. I absolutely think you will be. They're very readable, her books. Good twists in them. So very excited about meeting her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And who else have we got coming up as well? Well, a woman electrician. We are very much looking forward to being able to hear Cathy Cockin, and she runs an electrical business and it's called Little Miss Electrical. Which is a great name. But first, let's hear from Alison Bruce. Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. excited to chat to our guest today because I've read several of her books and I have to confess I'm a bit of a fan. Alison Bruce is the author of nine crime novels and two non-fiction titles. Her DC Gary Goodhue novels are set in locations which are very familiar to those of us who know Cambridge. But aside from Cambridge, Alison's novels are just great stories. Thank you very much for joining us on Women Making Waves today, Alison. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Well, it's lovely to have you. Now, you're one of five children, but the youngest by 11 years, I believe. So you described your childhood as virtually like being an only child. Was writing something that you were good at when you were growing up? Not necessarily writing itself, but making up stories. They're two different things, aren't they? I had a lot of stories going on in my head and I do remember writing things down. I had a a roll of wallpaper and on the back of this wallpaper... I'd created a rollout map of this sort of fictitious kingdom, which sounds a bit fairy tale like, but it wasn't really because there were horses involved. I was very big into horses. But the people who lived there had this sort of dual life of running the stables, but they were secretly spies. And this this kingdom had been given to them and it was a secret sort of, I say kingdom, but, you know, I don't know, tiny state hidden within England that had been given to them as a, a thank you for all the work they've done saving the country from disaster. So I don't know where all that came from. It is great. The things that you come up with as a child, you should probably revisit that, you know, Alison. You might well have a, a great story there somewhere. What did you do when you left the school? This is a very patchy career. The first thing I did was I went to college to start to train to be a riding instructor. And I didn't like it at all, partly because... And I'm going to say something very sexist here, but there was 30 something girls on the course and one lad and that many girls together wasn't very pleasant. I can imagine. 
And so I didn't enjoy it, but also I decided that I wanted to switch to motor mechanics. So I went to the, the motor mechanics teacher and I said, is there any chance I can switch to your course? And he said, I have no girls on my course and that's how I like it. Ooh, that is and awful. that was the end of that. That's so poignant. He had his sexist moment as well. So I left yeah. there and I worked for the DSS for a while, DHSS, I think it was then. Then I did a variety of things. I, I was an electroplater for a few months, for about a year and a half, I think, working for Thorny MI when they were first doing compact discs in this country. Then I'm very, very much into the 1950s and I had my own business making 1950s clothes for a while. So mm. I flitted in and out of quite a few different jobs. Uh, I eventually ended up in IT. And I think pretty much through all of this, I would have always been making up stories, but through most of it, I think I was writing bits and pieces as well. I used to write um, sometimes articles, band reviews and things like that for a, a music magazine. But um, I came up with the idea when I was, I'm guessing about 23 for a crime novel. And that eventually turned into the third book in the series. And so I think my my love of crime has gone back to before that sounds wrong, doesn't it? That sounds like I'm in a blow <laughs> felt or somebody, but, um, but it goes back to when I was at primary school, I think. I understand that you were shy when you were young and you actively, actively chose to become more aggressive and outspoken. That's a really difficult thing to do, Alison. I've done this a few times in my life where I've kind of extrapolated where I am and thought I don't like the look of where I'm going to be in 10 years time or whatever if I carry on on the same route and I think I must have been about 20 or 21 and I thought this this is ridiculous it can't go on I would go into a shop and one of my main dramas was having to speak to an assistant you know if somebody gave me the wrong change I wouldn't I would think oh I, I can't say anything I would hate to ask the you know the simplest question like can you tell me where the peas are or whatever mm -hmm. and I thought this is not going to be good for me so i don't know it was a culmination of a few things i remember i started another job and i was making an effort to speak up then uh, in some circumstances i was fine if i was with somebody one-to-one -one, i tend to be okay as soon as there was more than one person around then i've become very introverted i suppose i dyed my hair blonde and somehow that kind of gave me a different persona and across probably a few months, two or three months, I changed so much that I went to, to watch a band in Bristol and I was talking to somebody who I, I knew reasonably well. And after about 10 minutes, he went, oh, I've just worked out who you are. And I hadn't seen him for three or four months. And in that time, I'd changed so dramatically because it's more than just, you know, somebody's hair colour, what they look like, isn't it? But I changed so dramatically that he hadn't realised who I was. He obviously thought I was just some mad woman who decided to talk to him. <laughs> Alison, you sound as if that you really enjoyed this change in identity, as in blonde. Was that an amazing step for you to sort of come out of your shell? It's very fascinating, this thing, when people dye their hair for yeah. all sorts of reasons. I mean, does, did that, do you remember that moment? I, I do. Um, it came about kind of accidentally because I won having my hair highlighted at... Shoemies, do you remember Shoemie rollers? And you know, they used to make the bendy rollers. Yes. The Shoemie hair sa yes. salon. I won this really, really expensive highlighting treatment that took hours, but I didn't have the nerve to really go for it. So 
I had all these highlights done that were sort of one shade away from my normal hair color and nobody noticed. And I was sort of mortified with myself afterwards because I thought that could have been my magic moment or something or other. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I went and had it done really blonde, probably a sort of horrible 1980s kind of brittle, <laughs> horrible blonde, I think, <laughs> probably. But the point was, I suppose, that one of the things that made me really shy was that I'm quite, I still am very self-critical. When I do something, the idea that somebody's going to pick it apart can be really hard for me to to accept. And uh, so I always thought that I was under this super scrutiny when I did anything. And if I made a little mistake in my head, it was massive, you see. Mm-hmm. So what going blonde did was two things. One is I've always been quite pale. And if my hair's its normal color, my friend described my complexion as a dramatic shade of tuberculosis. So, <laughs> you know. Of course, that is um, harsh, but yes. Yeah, it was harsh. So yes. when my hair's its normal colour, people will say to me, you're looking ever so pale, do you feel okay? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I'm fine. So it dealt with that. But the other thing was, it really played into this blonde stereotype that, you know, you might think it's really annoying for people to throw the blonde stereotype at you. But for me, it worked beautifully. Because if I did something dumb, it was, everybody's expectations were... <laughs> Well, she's blonde. What else did we expect? If I did something really smart, they'd be like, and she's blonde, you know? So I just loved it. And I I immediately saw such a change in people's perception. And I could see it. It was quite vivid. And it made me think, well, I've been judged on something really superficial. If all it takes is me dyeing my hair a different colour for people to judge me differently, then whether they thought something good or something bad, they really didn't know what they were talking about. Mm. So suddenly I'd created this kind of safety bubble around myself and it allowed me to really be more adventurous and Mm. sort of hide behind this other persona. But I've never forgotten those feelings of wishing I could speak up and not being able to. Why crime stories in particular? Did you want to be a detective? Was it something like that? It's a funny combination of things. I do remember when I was at primary school, a teacher asking me what I thought I wanted to do when I grew up. And I said, be a pathologist. And they kind of recoiled. And I thought, well, perhaps I don't then. But it was something that was really interesting to me. My mum used to read a lot of classic British crime, mainly Agatha Christie, that type of golden age detective fiction. And then she used to watch a lot of American crime shows on TV. My dad would sit behind his book, scowling at the television and tutting. And then later I realised he was reading things like Ed McBain. He just didn't approve of the TV adaptations, you know. Um, (laughs) So I think there was probably an element of influence there. I do remember about tea time for a while on BBC Two, they used to put on an old film and didn't think too much about the age rating or anything like that. And I would come home and uh, I would watch one of these rather than, you know, Blue Peter or, or whatever. And there were three that I can remember that really, really affected me. Gaslight. Oh, yeah. To Kill a Mockingbird. And then most of all was The Night of the Hunter, you know, the film with Robert Mitchum. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene where he's murdered the children's mother and she's in a little 1920s, I suppose, open-topped car. She's tied in it and the car's submerged under the water and her her hair is billowing out in the water and she's just sort of animated but drowned in the water. And I was watching this and I must have been about 10 or 11, sort of hiding behind the cushions, jumping between 
oh, this is awful to, oh, this is amazing. And so I like the idea of telling stories that generated a reaction. Mm -hmm. But also I, I love the psychology of it. I think it's fascinating why people do things. You could say, okay, what would make somebody shoplift? But when you get into the realms of committing murder, you've really pushed people to their limits. So then I think it becomes a really an interesting question and, and there's a lot of story options. If you explore different scenarios and you think, well, how far does that push somebody? And I, I always think, you know, they talk about means, motive and opportunity. I think there has to be a fourth. I'm going to write a story about this at some point, I'm sure. But I think the, the one that's missing is abandon because people could have the means, the motive and the opportunity to say commit murder and they wouldn't do it. But in the same situation, when they're that much more desperate, they might. Mm. And I think the difference is this level of abandon when they reach the point where they don't care about the consequences or they're blind to the consequences because their desperation has reached that or the psychosis or, or whatever. So I find the why the big burning question for me. Yeah, especially for premeditated. If something happens and you lose your temper, that's one thing, but to actually plan something, that's quite something else, isn't it? It how, is, yeah. How closely do you work with the police? Do you have a, a police buddy that, and do you go in and follow what they're doing and things like that? This is uh, quite an amusing question because I'm, I'm wor actually working with the police at the moment. I'm working for Anglia Ruskin University and the police are going through a professionalisation programme and all new police recruits will be either getting a degree or they'll come in with a degree and they'll convert it to a policing qualification. And I'm working with Anglia Ruskin on the, the development of the training materials. So I have plenty of police on hand that I could ask interesting questions of. At the moment though, I've mainly been doing research with the pathologist. I have a friendly pathologist and uh, he's been helping me with some of the research, but I have access to plenty of police resources, which is lovely. And I think that shows in the writing actually, it shows in the, in the detail that you do go into in the, in the stories. I try to be really careful about research because I think some things you accept are fiction so when Gary's going off solving crime, you know that a detective wouldn't have the be able to run around and poking his nose in places he shouldn't and be in 10 places at once. You accept that. But there are things that need to be right about the research. And I think it only takes one small thing that jars with somebody for somebody to go, I'm not buying into this anymore. And one example of that is in my latest book, I did a lot of research about seatbelt injuries. I had quite a simple question at the start of the book when I was starting to research it, which if, if somebody was driving a car and they crashed, could they swap places with somebody else in the car and get away with it? Well, this raised way more questions and uh, I ended up doing quite a lot of research and I had a, a lot of help from this pathologist friend of mine. So in the end, I probably, probably could have written a dissertation on seatbelt injuries. Then I read a book that's really by a top-selling author. And when it got to the, the twist at the end and the big reveal, I sat there going, nope, nope, <laughs> nope. <laughs> because there are about 10 things that if you didn't know sounded plausible, but as soon as you knew a bit about the logic, about why that bruising wouldn't have been in that place and so on and so forth. The whole thing was implausible. Mm -hmm. So I never know who's reading my books. And I think, well, you know, if I'm researching, let's say the centre of Cambridge, then whatever I'm researching there, I need to get it as right as I can so that, you know, I'm not losing a reader because 
they live in the middle of Cambridge and on page 50 they go, no, and chuck the book to one side. There's not a shop in that corner. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm really intrigued by crime writers in the sense that, like the director, Quentin Tarantino, who obviously directs very graphic films in my book. As a writer, do you get a little bit scared when you finish your book and think, gosh, that was really, really raw and very, very scary? Do you think, nah, that's another one gone, Just tick that box? Or do you get very involved and think, actually, is this going a bit too far for the reader? I do get very involved. Everything's a difficult balance. Everything to do with writing is about balance, actually. You know, you have to be really creative and and you have to believe in your writing and you have to encourage yourself and then there'll be another point when you have to be your biggest critic and you have to ask yourself difficult questions and and question your judgment and throw bits away there's two halves to every bit of it and um i'll say it like this but it will sound wrong when i committed my first murder there you go i was thinking what if somebody copies it what if mm. this turns into there's there films book. like this, aren't yeah. they? You know, yeah, that's right. And, that's right. Yeah. And I've come up with a way of murdering people that I've never heard of before. What if somebody decides it's a good idea and it will be all my fault and all the rest of it? I have a few lines I wouldn't cross in theory. Mm, interesting. But okay. But I'm not saying I definitely wouldn't cross them because I think it would depend what my reasoning was at the time. So I have some quite violent moments in the books. I never wanted to write books that were sort of known for graphic violence for example because then i think you get a certain type of readership who's looking to see how you can outdo your last book mm. and i think you can get into very dangerous sort of torture ridden territory but you know i do have the odd page here and there that's quite dark and quite graphic and i think for me i have to make sure that it's it's there for a reason not like a an added bit of fancy dress I've added onto the thing. It has to be integral to the whole plot. So in, in my latest book, there's something that um, Ian Rankin said it made him squirm, which I took as a compliment. <laughs> really? Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, but overall, there's virtually nothing in the book that is really extreme. But then when you got to that moment, there had to be something that was the, oh, I've just witness what's happened moment yes, yes and so that right. it was really important that that was quite graphic but quite precise and not overdone not relishing the grimness of it if that makes sense yeah yeah that does interesting mm -hmm. you wrote seven dc goodhue books and then you moved on to feature other characters what was it like leaving the good Hugh characters behind? Was that, had you done your bit and you thought, nope, ready to move on? Was it scary or exciting? Well, it was a mix of both, I suppose. In my first book I wrote, which came out as the third book, Gary wasn't in it originally. I saw it as a, a standalone psychological thriller. And then I needed a detective at one point in it and his role grew and the book sort of changed and morphed, partly because... I had no idea what I was doing and I kept throwing it away and starting again and then it took it took me years. So I ended up at the end of the book with this detective that had accidentally arrived and as I finished the book I, I cried at the end of the book and it was really because I didn't want to say goodbye to him. So he came about kind of accidentally. So I had to go back and write the first book which was Cambridge Blue. Mm. You know, think about what he was doing a couple of years before before the book I had written. 
And at that point, I mapped out seven books and I worked out where he was going to be at the end of those seven books. And I could see, I can see why there are seven Harry Potter books, actually, <laughs> because to have an even number of books feels you have this sort of midpoint in a character's story. And for the midpoint of a character's story, in my head anywhere, how I pictured it, fall down the gap between two books didn't feel right. You want the character's midpoint to be in the middle of a book. So, well, that means you've got an odd number of books and five seem too many and nine seem too daunting. So I worked it out as seven books and I knew where he'd end up at the end of the seven. I sort of made a deal with myself, but when I got to there, I would rather than sort of contrive other stories featuring him, I'd leave him alone for a bit and see how I felt about writing some more. And so I came up with another idea for a standalone book and somewhere probably after that one, writing the next one, maybe I did think of more for Gary. I don't have plans to write it yet, but I do have another two books mapped out in my head at least. Did you enjoy the process of writing? Is that something you like sitting down at the start of a novel, I'm just kind of imagining that blank page feeling, you know, oh, that where do you start? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a bit of a love-hate relationship with me because I can have a day when I write and it goes well and I actually feel it's such a buzz and it's so uplifting and, you know, new ideas are coming to my head more quickly than I can write them down and I'm thinking, oh, I can do that and I can do that. And I've had that either idea and I'll save that for the next book. And there was that one. Oh, and I've, so I've got, I think I've got about 10 books in my head. And so they're not written down and I have funny rules about things. I'm sure all writers are the same and they have their own funny rules. But, you know, one of mine is if it's any good, I'll remember it. And if I forget it and it was any good, I'll never know what it was because I've forgotten it. So it's not worth worrying about. Um, <laughs> good philosophy for life, actually. <laughs> yeah. So I've got these books, there's about 10 of them. And the chances are, more books will arrive in my head before I've got through those 10. So, you know, I might not live long enough to write everything that I'd like to write. And so what will happen is that I'll be doing something and I'll suddenly think, oh, so-and-so in that unwritten book number six could be a brain surgeon or whatever. He could fall off a cliff and break his leg. And I'll file it away in that book six place in my head. So the books are gradually filling out and becoming more rounded and becoming more developed without me really thinking about them. And then there'll be, you know, ideas that will fit somewhere else in the book I'm working on and so on and so forth. And those days are really stimulating and, and exciting. And then there are days when you can spend the whole day and all you've achieved by the end of the day is deleting half of the words you did the day before and deciding that you're in the wrong career and you'd, you'd be better off doing practically any job on the planet because you're exceptionally rubbish at this particular one you know <laughs> but that is really good to hear though I know that sounds weird to say that but it is very good to hear such a successful writer as you are Alison that you have days where you just want to throw it away and just have time because I think we give a lot of impressions don't we that it's it's all work 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 and for younger generation who want to write books like you when you were younger is not to be put off you are going to have bad days whatever you do isn't mm. uh, that must be yeah. Yeah. very important for you yes there's a good bit of advice that says that the path to becoming a successful author is littered with the bodies of the ones that gave up um <laughs> and one thing's for certain is you can't edit a blank page you can't publish an unfinished book 
but once you've got to the end you can do a lot with those words as long as you're prepared to learn and develop and be critical of your own work once you've got the words down you can do something with them i didn't do you know any formal writing training or anything like that i made most of it up by combination of trial and error and looking at what other people have written other books that i liked and thinking oh i see why they've put that there type thing mm -hmm. um and working it out and i think that people shouldn't be put off because well it shouldn't be put off for any reason but they shouldn't give up because giving up is fatal but you know one story i remind myself of is my friend and i think i was on book six or seven at this point quite a long way into the series anyway my friend said to me, how's your book going then? And I said, it's awful. I said, I don't like the characters. The story is awful. My writing is dreadful. It's incredibly boring. Nobody's going to want to read it. Blah, blah, blah. I, you know, I had this rant and she said, mm, same as the last one then. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, have I said that before? And she said, you say it every book, <laughs> every book. So as soon as I open my mouth to say anything like that, I just... I shut myself up because I think, okay, I've been here before. So you have to you have to keep writing through these the lean bits, through the you know, the obstacles and, and sometimes not being able to write something and I have had difficult patches at times with, with if you want to call it writer's block, writer's block. When it's in the middle of a book, sometimes it's because I'm a firm believer of this, it's not scientifically proven, it's just my belief. But your subconscious knows that something you're about to do is not going to work so rather than you write it get it wrong and rewrite it your subconscious actually refuses to let you commit the words to the page yeah, so true. if i struggle for a while with a chapter i'll think okay what's the important bit that i'm trying to get across here and how can i approach it differently so i had one scene that i was trying to write and it was in an interview room and it was good and his boss and whoever they were interviewing and what was supposed to happen is this scene was going to lead up to the point where there was a reveal that there had been another murder victim and i worked on this chapter and it felt very pedestrian it just plodded along and it was supposed to be quite a mini climax in the book because you know it should be quite a big deal that you found another body or whatever but it was just not happening in the end there's a policewoman sue that works with gary in the end I cut the scene, probably about at the halfway mark or something, cut to her walking along the corridor. She opens the door and says there's been another one. And the whole thing, what's that bit? There's been another one. I don't know how many, is that four or five words or whatever. What I thought was going to be this 2000 word chapter ended up being this handful of words, but it was what was needed at that point. And then suddenly it's like, oh, that's done. And I moved on to the next bit wrote you know a few more thousand words it wasn't like i couldn't write i couldn't write that thing you know and so i think sometimes it's worth looking at writer's block or whatever as a kind of an opportunity to step back to look at your work differently think how can i approach this and not to feel that it's a sign of defeat it's just a sign of your subconscious saying change pace change direction change character's point of view see it from a different angle freshen it up because it's getting a bit stale. So it's a tool in the toolkit. Yeah, that's a really good piece of advice, I think, to anyone yeah. who's who's writing or wants to become a writer. You also have two children. How on earth do you find the time to have a job, to write and to, to run your home as well? That, that must be very difficult. 
you know, I, I have such a good time with my kids. I mean, they're not small now, they're 15 and 21. Yeah, we just have such a good time together. So I think I mainly fit it in by being a bit nocturnal, a bit short on the sleep front. <laughs> so do you, do you get up very early in the morning or do you stay up very late at night? It's a bit of both. I used to quite often write all the way through the night about once a week and quite a lot towards the end of a book. When the kids were small, I would start writing in the evening after they'd gone to bed. Um, and sometimes that would be, they weren't great sleepers, you know, 11 or whatever. And I might do 11 through to two in the morning, something like that. I'm now finding that I seem to be waking up. I think I woke up about half past five or something this morning. I did about 1500 words before work this morning. So your, mind, your mind's buzzed, isn't it? It's it's in that zone. That really is. Very yeah, it must be hard to stop as well, yeah. though. If you're at a really good bit and it's all pouring out from your head and you can't get the words down fast enough, do you not think, oh, no, I don't, <laughs> don't want to leave. I want to keep going. Yeah, <laughs> I love it when it's like that. And it hardly ever happens. I mean, mostly I will have spells when I just start to get onto a roll and I have to stop for you know a reason. But when I wrote, I think it was The Silence, which was the fourth Gucci book. I've done this a few times, actually. I thought I was going to finish this one particular evening. So I carried on writing all the way through the night. It got to dawn and I still had two chapters to go or whatever it was I thought I'd had the day before. So anyway, this particular time I went to sleep and I slept for about four hours and I got up and I remember just waking up in this huge panic thinking, I haven't written for ages. And I've forgotten it all as I was waking up. Um, but uh, when it happens like that, and I think it's, it tends to be the very last chapters of the book, when everything is in place and it's like the domino tip of everything can only fall in one order and it's just got to pour out of you. It's absolutely fantastic because it's almost not me writing. Yeah. I'm there and it, I'm a sort of... How um, new age does this sound? I'm a sort of conduit for it, darling. Yes. I'm a conduit. I, I know exactly what you mean. It, it just becomes a waterfall of something else that's taken over. Yeah, yeah. it's amazing. I, my, my record actually is, and I didn't feel upbeat about this at the time, I wrote for 24 hours straight. And uh, I was so disappointed because I felt that I hadn't written very much. And I, I looked at my word count and I must have been mentally in such a, a detached place that I had no idea... And I looked at my word count and I'd done 9,200 words in 24 hours. Um, and I will never, ever come close to that again, I'm quite certain. But uh, I just kept staring at it going, that can't be right. But I knew it was right. I mean, it was right. That was a complete one off. And I'd, I'd love to be in that zone. I'm not, my goodness, I could do a book a fortnight if I could do that regularly. <laughs> oh, wow. How did it feel when you got your first agent? Because I've got friends who are, who are writers and it's a big thing when they, when they get the first agent and their first publisher. Do you remember that moment? Was that something that you were very excited about? Yes and no. I, got, um, I, I was potentially going to be with one agent and then they wanted Gary to be more sort of alpha male gung-ho and, you know, and I'm quite happy to be edited and everything, but I thought, hmm, I don't think this is the right agent for me. Mm. So I kind of resigned from the agency before I got anywhere. And then it was a really long haul to find another agent. But, you know, it's really a question of me finding an agent that somebody said to me, it's as important that you like the agent as it is that they like you because you're going to be with them for a long time. And if you don't really value their opinion and if, if you're not sort of of the same mindset, then this person's going to give you good and bad news and 
you want to actually understand where they're coming from. And, uh, and I thought, well, this is right. So I spent ages looking for an agent and I kind of narrowed it down by, I saw authors that were, especially at Heifers, they did a lot of book events. So I went to see authors and if I sort of got on well with the author and I liked the way their book was presented, I'd look in the back and see which agent they were with. And then I'd find some excuse to bump into the agent at different book events until I created a short list of agents. And I got it down to about six or seven and I, I sent out to them. And about four, I think, asked to see the whole book, which is a really good sign. And then the one I decided I really liked turned me down. But she said something like, hmm, something that made me think it wasn't, she didn't really mean it. <laughs> so I just pursued her and she kind of gave in and she said, all right then. And uh, that was how I got an agent, which was, um, she wasn't exactly beating down my door. She just kind of cracked. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness for the blonde confident moment in your life then, because you wouldn't have been able to do that if you hadn't gone through that. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I actually waited for her outside an event in London and I gave her a 37 page proposal on how I was going to change my book to meet every one of her objections. And it went like this. And then she said, oh, all right then. Um, and then she tells me not to tell this story because she doesn't want other people hounding her. Yes. She said it was a bit stalkerish. <laughs> I can imagine. So what next? I know you're writing at the moment. Is that is this another novel yes. that we can look forward to? Yes, it's called Because She Looked Away. There was quite a big debate with the publisher about whether I could start a book title with the word because. So I think I've just sort of, I don't know, broken some taboo there or something or other. And it's the first in the series, uh, a series featuring a new detective called Ronnie Blake, who's come up from London and she not a big fan of Cambridge to begin with, at least. Um, oh, Ronnie's a she uh, then? Yes. Ah. She's heading up a missing persons team, sort of cold case type missing persons team, that uh, is a small team kind of filled with people who don't really fit in any other department. So it's a sort of ragtag little bunch of people. So I've got uh, the first one of those that I'm finishing off and then three more after that. I've obviously got these ideas for two more Good Shoe books. I've got a couple of other projects up my sleeve. Yeah, so I'm pretty busy. We talked about all of the jobs you've done in the past, but one of your biographies caught my eye. It said, rather mysteriously, you used to dress as Andy Pandy on a Monday. <laughs> <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> I used to do, I worked at the bowling alley. This was obviously after I'd gone blonde when I had a little bit more of a sense of adventure. And I worked at a bowling alley and they were quiet on Mondays and busier every other night of the week. So they started this thing called Monday Night Madness and they asked me to dress as Andy Pandy. But they didn't have Andy Pandy hands, I had Mickey Mouse hands that, that these moulded plastic hands with obviously only three fingers and I used to bounce around with a microphone and I used to run up to people and ask them questions and, uh, you know, spot prizes and things like this. I did this for several months. The lanes that one end of the bowling alley had a bar area and the other end was more sort of family designed. And at the bar end, the lanes were lit with fluorescent lighting and I'd been doing this handy pandy thing for several months before somebody told me that every time I walked under the fluorescent lighting, my costume had been see-through for months. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> They so eventually I, told you, did they? <laughs> yeah, so I wasn't anti-pandy anymore. That was my final performance. 
Well, I've really, really enjoyed talking to you today, Alison Bruce. Thank it's been you. lovely. I haven't had an interview like this before. <laughs> well, it has. It's been very interesting, like very enlightening. <laughs> oh, thanks for having me on the programme. Really enjoyed myself. Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Coming up after the break, sparks are going to be flying because we're going to hear from Cathy Cocken. She has her own electrical business, doesn't she? Yes, and her company name is Little Miss Electrical. Very inspirational, I think, as well. Cambridge 105 Radio. Join me, Neil Jones, every Tuesday here on Cambridge 105 Radio for the very best from the world of rock. Every week we'll bring you big name interviews, all the latest from the local scene here in Cambridge and the very best rock songs around. It's two hours of rock every single Tuesday from nine o'clock with me, Neil Jones, right here across the city in South Cambridgeshire on Cambridge 105 Radio. Need dropping off at work? Miss the bus and must make that urgent appointment. Need picking up after a night out with your mates? Panther Taxis is your Cambridge-based taxi firm with over 700 drivers, offering great rates and local knowledge, ensuring you make it quickly and safely to your destination. We don't inflate our prices at peak times, and all our drivers accept payments by cash or card. Book your taxi the easy way. Download our free Panther Taxis app through your app store and start booking your taxis on the go. Call Cambridge 715-715 or see panthertaxis.co.uk. Panther Taxis, your local quick, reliable and friendly taxi company in the city. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Sarah, one of CKLG's friendly tax advisors. Creating and preserving wealth is an aspiration for many of our clients. In our complex world of changing legislation and family circumstances, we listen and provide you and your family with bespoke tax advice tailored to your needs. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk CKLG Accountants your partner in business your partner in life Cambridge 105 Radio Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio Cathy Cockin is the founder of Little Miss Electrical working in West Yorkshire and it's a team of female and male electricians they're called the Emergency Electrical Callout. Now, female electricians are Cathy's aim to promote females in the construction industry. And I think it's quite good news, actually, for women out there aiming to work in the industry. Hello, Cathy. Very, very lovely to have you here on Women Making Waves. What made you want to start up Little Miss Electrical? Now, by, by trade, you are an electrician, but you founded a company. I suppose in many ways you are an entrepreneur. How did that all begin? Well, I um, I retrained as an electrician nearly four years ago now, so it was all kind of unexpected. I went to university to study law, and I met my boyfriend, who's a plasterer, and was a keen sort of property renovator as well. When we bought our first house together, it needed a lot of building work doing. I'd, I'd never done anything like that before, and I was really keen to get stuck in, and I just really enjoyed the whole renovation project. Our electrician was so busy, he was always struggling to get to us and, and he just was overrun with work. So I just used to see my boyfriend who was a plasterer and also self-employed and he just had so much more control over sort of his workload and just sort of his income, things he did. And at, at first I kind of thought it was that he had such a hands-on role, which was what I was sort of longing for. 
but now when I look back I realise it is a lot more to do with being self-employed and having a bit more control over sort of how I can progress and so that when we came to buy our second house I was really keen to play a more involved role and, and Ollie kept saying to me you know why don't you do something like plumbing be a heating engineer or maybe an electrician and then you know you could get a bit more stuck in and that, that was my intention to begin with. Was this something that you'd always been interested even though you studied law? Well, I'd always been really interested in like building and making things. I remember taking remotes apart and stuff when I was little and not being able to put them back together properly and things like that. But I'd always been like really, I loved woodwork at school. I'd always been really hands on. I think I just felt like doing something like law would make me, you know, have like a steadier path where at the end of my degree I'd get, you know, a good job and have a good career ahead of me. And when I did going to law because it's so saturated with graduates from uni wanting to sort of progress I just found it was like it wasn't what I expected at all it wasn't what I was kind of banking on I I thought when I finished uni I'd already have a you know decent job and secured position but really it was it was more that I was you know in a sea of hundreds and thousands of law graduates that were all you know trying to get somewhere towards being a fully qualified solicitor and when my boyfriend was going to work and it just seemed like he had such a happier carry-on than what I was having. I used to work for a law firm and I think I know exactly what you mean it's quite (laughs) quite competitive. Really competitive and really saturated like there's so many law graduates out there that are all in the same boat really. And also I don't know if you were specialising but that's a a thing that happens in in a lot of the larger firms people specialise and then you're I don't, it's the same every day, really. Yeah, well, quite... I just did property to begin with, and I do think it's difficult to get into sort of any specialist area unless you know somebody that was already in that area, unless That's you right. want to do the things that are more saturated, like conveyancing or personal injury, you know, negligence claims, things like that. You've got to start with that sort of thing, and you've got to really graft, you know, you've got to start right at the bottom, and, and to be honest, I think you've got to make more friends than you have work hard, because that seemed to be how he progressed if you got on the right side of the right people. Um, yeah. yeah. So you decided then else. that you wanted to be an electrician, you trained to be an electrician, and then wh- how did the jump come from being an electrician and starting your own business? That must have been quite scary. Yeah, so I found a, a course where I could train alongside working full-time still in the law firm. It was called a domestic installer course, and it was it was really quite a short course to do it sort of a week here a week there you know spread out and so because I couldn't just leave my job that was my plan I thought well I'll book him annual leave to work around this course and so then I managed to find a job with an electrician who was willing to take me with him on a weekend and I was a bit optimistic really I thought oh yeah I can do this course and I can learn how to do it and I'd got so stuck in the renovation project at our house and it was literally everything came out of the house back to the brick walls and we did literally start again from you know the shell of a house so I, I was aware of the process and and what you did but my technical knowledge on electrics at the start was you know it was limited I didn't I didn't know much about it until I did this course and started working with a guy called Steve on a weekend but literally after my first week on the course I ended up leaving and going and working with him full-time so I was really lucky that yeah. he offered to give me the opportunity because a lot of especially women but a lot of people who are trying to start out and get experience do struggle do they really? Do you think that women in particular struggle to get in there? Is it very much a man's world? I, I do think women struggle a lot. Everybody's got their own approach and I can't speak for how everybody else has approached getting work experience. I mean, I've never had problems finding jobs before because if I just didn't get one, I'd just go find another one. But I do think generally on a whole, when you are trying to get work experience and you're not experienced at all, it's not financially viable for somebody to take you on and pay you mm-hmm. much money when you're spending a lot of time learning but also 
it's takes them more time and it takes them away from what they're doing to try and show you so That's it true. is difficult and i know they do a lot of sort of encouragement for apprenticeships but again with apprentices if you're over 19 the employer has to pay to send them to college and so a lot of apprentices over 19 or adult learners do struggle to get experience uh, in trades but especially women i think just because you know the the typical setup is that they're all lads and you're going to be the only girl there and if they're doing things like working away and things like that you know it means they've got to get a separate room because a female can't share a room with the lads and things like that you know they're all mm. different things that are going to mean girls are going to struggle to get sort of their foot in the door with somebody so you started your company little miss electrical how did you find your fellow colleagues then to run the business with you so what happened was i worked with steve for a few months while I rewired my house and we split the house from a two-bedroom mid-terrace to a three-bedroom house with an underdwelling that was a separate flat and I wired all that and Steve helped me along the way and I did my course and learned how to do it all and got my head around it and then I started doing my own little job sort of and, and came away from working with Steve but I'd always said from the start I'm gonna go on my own at some point and what I did was I went to a networking group and the people there they looked at my I had at the time I used to call my brand CMF electrical which was my initials and they all were like so so what what is it you do what what does that say and they didn't really get it but to me it made sense because the letters were in the same colors as the wire that you get inside the cable and to me like it all worked out well because there was three letters and there's three different colors and but to just to everyday people they looked at it and sort of squinted and said what <laughs> and they all said to me look you're a female electrician and you need to make that clear and I've always been a bit of a tomboy so I was like oh god not this again like I'm a girl I know <laughs> and um, they were like no you need to put it in your branding like if somebody doesn't know who you are and just sees your brand they don't know that you're a female electrician and you need to shout that from the rooftops because that's your USP and I was like mm. a what what <laughs> so it was my fellow networkers at this networking group that sort of helped me there was three or four of them and they were like right you know this is what you should do like giving me loads of suggestions and one of them had a branding company and he helped me to create the little miss electrical brand with his company and it was just me then it, i was just working on my own doing little jobs and working with steve you know alongside that so i did have a couple of different like laborer or apprentice potential apprentices who were a mixture of both female and male and when i approached the local college about getting an apprentice they introduced me to Brittany, who's been with us for three years now and she came doing a bit of work experience with me and we just had so much in common like we both were really into she had some pet some pet chickens and we had chickens and we've got like a bit of a small hold and she went down the allotment so we we just you know we got on really well and she ended up coming to work for me as my first apprentice so my team have just sort of built from there so i did make a post on facebook once when i was looking for somebody just to help me on a couple of jobs and a guy called Paul, who was great, he came and worked for us for a few months. <laughs> Everyone would say to him, where's your wig and your skirt? <laughs> um, and he, he was a really good laugh. It, it was really nice to have you know, a good mixture of, of lads and girls in the team. And because he subcontracted to people, he never wanted like a full-time job. You know, he did a few months with us. We do when we're, when we're stuck, if we need, if we've got a big job, like a big rear or something, and we need just a few hands on deck, we will go to the local college and get, you know, a few of the students that are looking for apprenticeships to come with us and then we can give them a reference and they can put some work experience on their CV. So I don't employ strictly on the women or anything like that, but it just happened the way that things have worked that the team actually at the minute are all girls so obviously saying that on a branding mm -hmm. it matches what yeah. we are at the minute yeah <laughs> I, I, I do kind of wonder if men might be slightly put off working for little miss electrical 
because of the, you know, they might get the mickey taken out of them? Well, I don't know. I suppose, like, that's to them, isn't it? I used to say to Paul, like, are you bothered? Him? And he he used his car for work. And when, when we were quite busy, we needed another van. So I got another van and it had the little electrical thing on it. And I said, do you want to use it? Do you mind using it? And he said, well, Sky Engineers have Peppa Pig vans. So what does it matter? <laughs> that is so, very true. He's, he's just perfect, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he was great. He's a, you know, we still chat all the time. We, we still keep in touch. But you've got to also remember that whether or not other companies want to admit it, I know from speaking to other people in the industry that female tradespeople are not sought after when you've got a company of male trades where you're going working away because they've got to pay for another hotel room just for her and you know things like that that make it more difficult for girls to get placements because it costs the company more money or it makes things more difficult i don't think companies will openly admit to that but i know that it goes on because i've heard about it from talking Mm. to other people in industry Mm. i know i can i can well imagine i mean do you ever get this kind of well you know, women aren't as physically strong as men and some of the work that you do presumably does require some strength. Do you ever come across that kind of scenario? Yeah, so we do mainly domestic work with a bit of commercial and commercial and domestic work can be quite similar in what you actually do. Industrial work and some commercial work will touch on metal conduit, galvanised conduit, which is quite a strenuous activity because you've got to bend the conduit. So you're basically bending a metal pipe. Now, a lot of blokes, especially male electricians, are saying, oh, well, I'd like to see you with the conduit bender and I'd like to see this and I'd like to see that. But I'm quite athletic. I ride a horse. I pull a big 15-hand horse round. You know, I don't think that just because I'm quite a petite female that I've not got the strength to bend a bit of conduit. The guys that do it aren't, what's it called, the Hulk? Yeah, (laughs) bodybuilders. (laughs) Yeah. Cathy, then, on that note, before you started this business, obviously you would see that there was sexism in in the industry and everywhere else. But by running your business, has it made you much more determined to make sure that there are more women in the construction industry? Yeah, definitely. It never really was something that I thought about. I never thought, like, I can't be an electrician because I'm a woman, or I never thought I'd be in the minority. I didn't see it like that. I just got on with it. And um, when I did retrain, because my boyfriend's a plasterer and he gets a lot of work from all his friends... I just expected to get the same customers he had because he was my boyfriend, he could recommend me. And when I didn't, I was a bit like, oh, they don't want to use me. And that's why I started growing networking. And branding as a female electrician in the domestic sector, you'll get such good responses. But when you actually go into industry and start speaking to other electricians, you know, and employers and recruiters that are, you know, further into industry, you do start to get a bit more negativity and a lot of, oh, you know, you, you're not going to be strong enough to do this, you're not going to be strong enough to do that. But on the flip side of that, you know, since I started my business, I get people approach me quite a lot from schools, careers advisors, asking us to go in and speak to the students about getting a trade, whether they are girls or boys. And it's really nice now because I see a lot more younger women who they've thought about becoming an electrician or a plumber or a builder because they've seen my company or they've seen another female tradesperson and, it, and it's not phased them. Whereas yeah. when I was at school, if you'd have said that, you'd have got laughed at, you know, it, w- it would have been ridiculous. But I think it's that that makes me feel more determined when I see these young people and some of these little girls really interested in what I'm doing and she wants to know. Or when their young children come in and they say, oh, it's the electrician. And it doesn't even phase them that I'm a female electrician. Like, that's what yeah. drives me more to wanting to, you know, make a more of a difference because that generation are not phased by it anymore. They're not seeing it as a difference. 
they're just thinking, oh yeah, an electrician, I could do that, and it doesn't matter if they're a girl or a boy. Yeah, and that's how it should be, actually. That is how the world should be. There will be a time when it won't, you won't need to brand as a Little Miss Electrical or a female electrician or include that in your marketing so that people know because people won't expect you to be a man if you're an electrician. I think we're a while off, but I do think we are working towards it and it, it is definitely going that way. Well, I think there. you're doing a great job, Cathy. I really do. And to have your company out there will inspire a lot of other women to do maybe not just electricians, but other things too in the construction industry. It's got to be a good thing, Cathy. It really has. I wish I could go back in time, actually, and be told that you could have been an electrician. I don't know. I just, I was fascinated by plugs. Now, I don't, <laughs> honestly, I was. I was fascinated because I wanted to change a plug. Now, whether that was going to make me the most fantastic electrician, probably not. Well, it's a start, Susie. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Were you a bit of a hands-on then? Did you like making things Were you when you were younger then? I think I had to do that at work, probably, because I quickly got into IT. You know, these, these Cat5 connectors, I spent a long time crimping these together. You know, they're like the cabling that you, you plug into the little socket in an office. Do you see the blank face? You, you, you haven't got a clue what I'm talking about, have you? No, never mind. <laughs> We'll go back to talking about bunnies and pink handbags. <laughs> <laughs> oh, saying that, I have actually bought myself a handbag recently. So, yeah, you're really? right. Yes. I'm a little bit worried about yeah. all the shops that seem to be closing down. Mm. There's a lot of the really good ones. Yeah, that's true, actually. You're absolutely right. There is... The, John the, Lewis's seem well, to be they disappearing. They've now. They've, they've, they've said they're not going to close the John Lewis stores. Oh, that's good. Because they're frightened of the impact it will have on mm-hmm. communities. They're one of the places I head for if I go out shopping. Do you not, John yeah. Lewis? Oh, yeah. John Lewis has been in our family for years and years <laughs> and years. I'm not kidding you. When I grew up in Streatham in South London, we had a John Lewis store. But I think they were they were franchises at the time. And ours was called Pratt's. <laughs> it was the John Lewis called Pratt's, P-R-A-T-T-S. We loved mm-hmm. it. I'm just kind of trying to imagine saying I work for Pratt's. <laughs> sounds, sounds like you do it like your bosses. <laughs> well, I haven't bought clothes for ages. Have you not? And I'm getting to the point it would be quite tricky to get out of the house now <laughs> wearing rags and going into a clothes shop. So I don't quite know how I'm going to get round that chicken and egg situation. Well, maybe you could volunteer for one of those little promotions where they change your look. They change oh, right. all the clothes that you would normally want to wear. Oh, like that 10 years younger programme. Yeah, and you could you could volunteer to do that. <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> well, I've got a hairdressing appointment coming up. <gasps> so I'm looking forward to that a lot. Mm. Well, if it's any consolation, I did actually manage to go to the hairdressers before they closed. And I know that my hairdresser was so absorbed by packing as many clients into the day. Usually I sit in the chair for an hour. He gave me half an hour and I came out thinking, well, that wasn't good enough. But it doesn't matter. He was packing them all in before he had to give up. And I suppose you can't really blame him, can you? Well, that would suit me fine because all that toshing about that they do at the end just drives me crazy anyway. I mean, it doesn't really make an improvement, does it? Just cut it, dry it, leave it. Speak for yourself. Out. I think it makes a hell of a difference if I have an extra half an hour. So 
this is running out of time then, Susie. I think we've reached the end of this episode. Mm. Who have I got to say thank you to? Oh, Alison Bruce, crime author, novelist, absolutely fantastic. And Kathy Cockin, she runs Little Miss Electrical. Good stuff. Looking forward to the next episode already, Susie. So am I. So while you're waiting for the next episode, you can keep up with us on social media. You can. And also Facebook and Twitter is at Women Making Ways. And of course, on Instagram, it's at Women Making Ways Radio. Where else can you find us, Linda? Well, you can find us on cambridge105.co.uk or you can visit our own website, which is womenmakingwaves.co.uk. If you go there, you can hear all of our interviews. And of course, you can listen any time you like, which is great. See you next time. Bye.